You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that meditation has amazing psychological benefits, things like stress reduction and brainwave coherence, but you probably knew that. But what you probably didn't know is that studies also show that one of the physiological benefits is that meditation can improve your sex life because it increases your libido and it does it by boosting the sex hormone called DHEA, which is a precursor to things like testosterone that increase libido. Also, that means you'll get better sex if you sit there and meditate. So you wouldn't expect this. But it's true, and I am living evidence of this. At least I like to think I am. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. All right. Today's guest is Dan Harris. Dan's an Emmy award-winning co-anchor of Nightline and the weekend edition of Good Morning America. He's regularly on 2020 World News Tonight with David Muir, Good Morning America, ABC Digital News and Radio, and pretty much all over the place if you watch TV, which most of us do. He's also had an amazing story where he goes and he covers some of the most incredible things, uh, things like natural disasters in Haiti and New Orleans, uh, combat in Afghanistan, Israel, Gaza, the West Bank. He's been to Iraq six times. And he's on the show because he just wrote the New York Times bestselling book, A 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works. Uh, he's even got an app designed to teach meditation to skeptics, which, Dan, makes me laugh like crazy. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I don't know if you remember, but I did a story about you. That is true. You did. <laughs> I, I did a story about you, and, and I, I think it was ProVigil. That was actually one of the very, very first uh, first national news things about modafinil that I've uh, that I've ever seen. In fact... I remember sitting in my backyard with you. We were meditating while they were filming, and uh, and my dog came up and sat on your feet, if, if memory serves. 
<laughs> I, I remember all of that except for the dog, but I, I like the dog part. <laughs> it was, uh, I'm pretty sure he did. He likes to come and sit on your feet when you meditate. It, it's a strange thing, but it's a dachshund thing. It, it, it's kind of funny. It, that was about four or five years ago, I'd, I'd say. And you've tamed the voice in your head since then. I think you were already working on it back then. At least you seemed like you knew how to meditate. Uh, why did you decide to write the book? Uh, so uh, there's, there, there's like the long story, the medium story, the short story. I'll try to pack it into the, to the medium. Um, uh, the, the, I think the inciting event for me really was that I had a panic attack on national television, um, in, back in 2004, uh, on Good Morning America. I was, um, reading the news headlines. I was the guy who comes on at the top of the hour and reads the headlines and, and, um, I just like I could, I could uh, my heart started racing, my lungs seized up, my mouth dried up, my palms were sweating. I, I couldn't deal, and I couldn't breathe, and I had to quit in the middle of my little newscast and toss it back to the main anchors of the show, uh, Diane Sawyer and Charlie Gibson, and um, the, that was embarrassing. But even more embarrassing was the, the backstory. I had, uh, as you mentioned, I spent a lot of time in Iraq and other war zones as an ambitious young reporter after 9-11 and um, you know, I was in Afghanistan and Israel and the West Bank and Gaza and I got depressed uh, after doing that and um, uh, very did a very stupid thing which is I started to self-medicate with recreational drugs like cocaine and ecstasy and after I had the panic attack I went to a doctor who was trying to get to the bottom of the problem, and uh, he uh, asked me whether I did drugs, and I said, yeah. And he pointed out that that, that, was, an, that was what caused the panic attack. It, was, it artificially raised the level of adrenaline in my brain and primed me to freak out. So that kind of set me off on this long journey of figure, you know, trying to you know, be less of an idiot. And... Um, <laughs> and uh, so I, this is where I'm going to short and truncate things uh, very dramatically. It ultimately led me to meditation, which I always thought was very was totally ridiculous, um, and only for hippies and freaks and people who live in yurts and are you know wear little finger symbols and are really into you know Cat Stevens and crystals and things like that. I wasn't entirely wrong about that, um, but I was wrong enough, as I learned, and I, I started discovering the science around meditation, and uh, so that really changed my mind. And why I decided to write the book was that I, I realized that, w that there was, at, at that time, this was in around 2008, 2009, there was a lot of really interesting science, and there were a lot of really interesting people who were starting to get into meditation, but... Um, there weren't a lot of books that were designed for skeptics. Um, yeah. A lot of the books, like, had a background of pan flute music, or you know, like <laughs> felt felt like they did, or you know, or felt like you were being addressed as grasshopper. Um, and so, I wanted to, um, uh, you know, write a book that had irony and and I, I share a lot of really embarrassing things about myself. I swear a lot and. Uh, I thought that would be maybe I had an entrepreneurial itch, uh, as, um, and so that's why I did it. It's uh, it, it's funny because I, I come from Silicon Valley. Uh, my grandmother uh, met my grandfather on the Manhattan Project, and she still subscribes to this day. She's ninety four to the to the Skeptical Inquirer, which is like the original troll magazine, like from the nineteen sixties. Right, and uh, if, if I mention meditation to her, she's kind of like, meh, like, why would you do such a thing? Uh, but there is some science behind it, so uh, kudos to figuring out how to talk to a group of people who, uh, who can probably benefit from it. Uh, I, I look at this, there's a group of people who think the glass is half full, and they've probably got pan flutes going. There's a group of people who think it's half empty, and they're the angry skeptics. And then there's like, well, it's a glass, and it's got stuff in it, and like you could think about it. Where there just isn't like a, a big perspective on it, and like it's okay, whatever. I, it seems like walking that middle is, is the most functional place to be. Uh, would you agree with that, given your path? Or are you like one of those that's like you should be in one direction versus the other? No, I think I agree with that. Um, you know, and I was really trying to find a way to speak to 
everybody, and including the people, the glass half empty people, um, yeah. or or your grandmother, you know that, or or frankly, my mom. My mom is a scientist who, when I was like eight, sat me down and explained that not only is there no Santa Claus, but there's also no God. Um, <laughs> this this is you know the the type of house that I grew up in, and so and I too am a, a died in the wool skeptic. But there's a difference between. Uh, being skeptical and being cynical, blinded by cynicism, you know, uh, and I think that's where I was, um, especially as it pertained to meditation. And once once you see the the, the science, you know, it's. Yeah. Let me just say a few words about it. It's really in its early stages, so and in danger at times of being hyped. Um, but what I think we can say with real certainty is that it's strong this the 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 explosion of scientific research into meditation strongly suggests a long list of tantalizing health benefits like lowering your blood pressure boosting your immune system literally rewiring key parts of your brain that have to do with focus and stress and emotional reactivity and compassion and i don't care how skeptical you are once you hear this it starts to um, it's you start to get intrigued, and it, it it I think the there's a pretty good analogy to be made to physical exercise. You know I don't care even if you're a skeptic. I think most people embrace physical exercise. Know that physical exercise is good for you, whether you do it or not. And that's where I think we're heading with meditation. Great great analogy. It 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 seems like it seems like there's been a shift. I, I've been interested in meditation for the performance benefits for a very long time and I put it on my my LinkedIn profile <laughs> like at least 15 years ago uh, I put meditation and yoga at the end of the interest and it, in Silicon Valley that was kind of like people would look at you weird if they noticed it and it was like maybe one in ten would say yeah like I actually do something like that too but most people it, it was sort of like an admission of weakness has, has that changed do you think public perception has shifted yeah, I think it is shifting, um, but I can see how it would be seen as an admission of weakness, just the way saying you go to a therapist would be seen as an admission of weakness or or yeah. probably was 15 years ago, less so now. Um, but we're in an era where uh, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, the New York Knicks, Novak Djokovic, 50 Cent, the lead singer <laughs> of Weezer, Lena Dunham, uh, Google, Twitter, Aetna, uh, George Stephanopoulos, Robin Roberts, Katy Perry, all these, uh, the founders of Twitter, uh, you, all these uh, people that are aspirational figures who are, and are tough people, yeah, the U.S. Marines and the U.S. Army yeah. um, uh, are all meditating. And so I think it's, it's, it's hard to see it as a sign of weakness when you look at the crew of people who are now doing this. Um, so I think perceptions are shifting, and I think that's really great because I think this is the next big public health revolution. And I'm excited about it not only because I think it's really going to it'll improve health overall, but also that unlike past health revolutions, like, you know, oral hygiene, which really happened after World <laughs> War II, as far as I understand, you know, when the troops were at, told that they needed to brush their teeth, uh, oral hygiene or physical exercise, which really started to happen in the last century, too. Those had health benefits, but they didn't really result in widespread behavioral change. I think meditation, if you think, if, if the current percentage of the population that currently engages in um, physical exercise starts to engage in uh, mental exercise, think about the impact on bullying, on uh, education, on parenting, on marriage, on politics, on journalism, on road rage, all, all these aspects of our life. And I think that's very exciting. It, it's one of those things where people can be nicer to each other, uh, just 10% nicer. It <laughs> comes from being 10% happier, right? Uh, it's one of the reasons I, I talk about it really openly is that I was also very skeptical, uh, and also I, I was—I think the technical word is—I was pretty much an asshole a lot of the time. Uh, it wasn't on purpose, though. It was just like a lack of understanding and probably a lack of training of the brain. And I spent extensive amounts of time and money, uh, ten weeks with electrodes on my head to let me meditate better with feedback and, and things like that. Uh, and that's one of the things behind Bulletproof is like, look, if, if you're not hungry all the time, if you don't have blood sugar crashes, if your brain is a little bit better organized, uh, you're less likely to flip off the guy in front of you in traffic. And like that, it makes ripples when you do things like that. 
That is exactly right. I mean, especially for beginning meditators, and I would count myself sort of as in the beginning, um, the, the benefit is that you are less yanked around by your emotions. Yeah. Now, most guys don't like talking about emotions, um, and, and I don't even, I don't yeah. either, but mm-hmm. you have them. And uh, or as my friend, my friend Chris Cuomo, who's a news anchor on CNN, says that he shifts gears between his two primary emotions, which are rage and self-pity. Um, <laughs> and and when you are unaware of these emotions, when you're unaware of the nonstop conversation you are having with yourself, it yanks you around, and that's why you do stupid shit like lose your temper when it's. Uh, yeah. strategically unwise in a professional context or say the thing that ruins the next 48 hours of your marriage or eat the 18th cookie or whatever it is all the stuff that you don't want to be doing is because you are unaware of the voice in your head and are therefore yanked around by it and meditation is just the building of an internal telescope that allows you to see what what uh, the activity of your uh, of your mind uh, so that it doesn't yank you around. It, now, there's a lot of other things that meditation can do, uh, but I think for beginners, that's the right way to think about it. It ain't complicated. It ain't mystical. It does not involve believing in anything, joining a group, wearing special outfits, um, sitting in a funny position. Uh, it's actually very simple. Um, and, and so I, my whole, my sort of raison d'etre of my function on the planet now is to say this as clearly as possible as loudly as possible in as many places as possible uh, so that people start to see this as an option that is viable for them. If you could have told me 20 years ago that I could turn off the voice in my head, I would have given anything to do it because it it was kind of a mean son of a bitch, right? I've done that. Uh, Like, I I don't actually have a voice in my head anymore after a a lot of, well, meditation and breathing and also some of the computer-driven stuff that I do, and, and people have a hard time believing it, but it's possible where you're like, like there, there isn't something like the harsh critic, all that stuff that was really a, a core part of the anxiety I used to have. It, it just goes away. Uh, um, but I think the vast majority of people, when, when you say that, even that the voice in their head could go away, they also experience some fear from that. Did you go through that as you're like, okay, I'm going to get in charge of this voice in my head, but if I'm in charge, then I'm responsible. Did you have like a reflexive, like what, what if it's not safe kind of, kind of moment? Uh, well, a b- bunch of things to say about that. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's totally intriguing that you feel like the, the voice in your head mm-hmm. has, uh, has gone away. That is definitely not the case for me. <laughs> I, I retain the capacity to be a schmuck. Um, uh, so I, that's why I like the whole 10% thing because, mm-hmm. um, it is my way of sort of counter programming against the, uh, you know, the reckless overpromising that you see in the self-help industry yeah. generally, um, that, by which I'm not referring to you. I'm just referring to the sort of um, uh, the power of positive thinking. Oh, you, you haven't levitated yet either? No, <laughs> I have not. Um, but, but, but I did have concerns about meditation because I thought it would make me lose my edge. I thought that this internal son of a bitch... Uh, was the reason for any success I had enjoyed in my life. Um, and, uh, and and I think a lot of people have these feelings. But I, this is the, and this is like one of the main things I am working on over the course of the book, the, the thing I'm kind of struggling with. And, and what I've come to is that um, it's okay to... Um, to have stress. It's okay to worry. It's okay to criticize yourself. It's it's that we tend to make our suffering worse than it needs to be. And what meditation or mindfulness allows you to do is to draw the line between useful, constructive anguish and useless rumination. Uh, so if you're going to try to be great at anything, yeah, there's going to be some mental churn and anguish at times. Uh, some worries, some plotting, some planning, some strategizing, some stress. But, you know, on the 17th time that you're playing out all the awful uh, ramifications of some business problem that has arisen, maybe ask yourself, this is something my meditation teacher counsels, maybe ask yourself a very simple question. Is this useful? (laughs) That is mindfulness in action. And your ability to do that is vastly uh, improved through learning this simple exercise of meditation. 
in your book, you write about how Peter Jennings told you to cover faith in America. No, you just said you don't have to wear clothes, you don't have to belong to an organization. Those are usually aspects of faith. So how did covering like the evangelical movement in America affect your perspective on meditation? So that happened, Peter pulled me aside and said, uh, you know, that he wanted me to start covering faith and spirituality for ABC News. That happened way before I started um, uh, meditating or even okay. thought it was an option. Um, and I didn't want to do it. I was like, dude, don't make me do this. <laughs> I, I was raised in the People's Republic of Massachusetts. Um, as I said, both of my parents were scientists. Um, I don't know. I said my mother's a scientist, but both of my parents are scientists. My wife is a scientist. I, mean, I, am, I did have a bar mitzvah, but only for the money. So <laughs> I was, like, not at all, you know, spiritually inclined. Um, but it was very useful for me covering uh, religion um, for a couple of reasons. One, as I realized how sort of reflexively, uh, how ignorant I was about what faith actually is and the role it plays in people's lives, um, and I was kind of reflexively judgmental. Um, uh, t t uh, two is um, I saw that having the value of I saw the value of having a worldview that transcends your own narrow interests. Um, and when there's an expression that we are always, uh, when you're never looking up, you're always looking around. Um, and, that, and that while I don't believe, per se, or I'm respectfully agnostic uh, about uh, the Jesus story, for example, you know, do, you know was he... Uh, the son of God who uh, rose from the dead. I mean, I, have, I haven't seen any evidence of that. But um, nonetheless, people who are active believers have a time every, you know, every Sunday morning at 11, they're going to church and they're thinking about things from a broader perspective. They're, they're thinking outside of their own narrow interests. And that is really useful. So that, that is what I took away from uh, covering faith and spirituality, even though I didn't, you know, uh, join a church or anything like that. Um, but I just will say about, because I, the, ki the kind of meditation that I practice, and I believe this is true for you, uh, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. is, is Buddhist meditation. Now, uh, I know you spent some, I believe you spent some time in Tibet. Um, yeah, in Nepal and Tibet, I, I learned at a, a monastery there. Yeah, and I think actually in, that, in, in some ways the kind of the root of your whole coffee uh uh, part of the the Tibetan coffee mixture is or Tibetan yak butter tea. That that's right. Yeah, that, that's how bulletproof coffee came about. Yes. So am I, I'm I'm remembering some of my time with you. Um, I think that Buddhism can be practiced as a religion with lots of deities and and prostration and uh, belief in metaphysical claims. But if you, it's one of the f only religions that I know of where the more fundamentalist you get the less metaphysical you get. If you look at what the Buddha actually said, he was not talking that much. About, he was not making very many metaphysical claims. He did not claim to be a god. He had no explanation for the origins of the universe. He did talk about reincarnation and uh, 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 like uh, sort of minor deities and things like that, but he specifically said you can take or leave that stuff. And really what he was doing was giving you an exercise regime for the mind. Yeah. Uh, as, as has often been said, Buddhism is not something to believe in, it's something to do. And so in that spirit, I have become a Buddhist, although I would also call myself an atheist. Uh, it is, uh, that, that is actually a really powerful way of, of expressing it. Uh, I use the Buddhist attempts to explain feelings in the body all the time uh, when I'm meditating or, or doing the other things that I do. And I think that it's very hard for me to say, well, okay, in order to let go of whatever that emotion is that would make me act like a total jerk, the step one is I like open the heart. And step two is envision a purple field. Like there aren't words to express a physical manifestation of an emotion in the body. So I think a lot of the Buddhist writings are, you know, in, envision the Buddha sitting on a 42 petal lotus it's their idea of like trying to create like the feeling in your mind of it because it's very hard to communicate between two people, even two people who meditate. It's like you know that one thing you do when you do that one thing. It, it, this isn't language for it, right? And, and thousands of years of trying and writing all sorts of rolled up manuscripts, I, they still are struggling with that, as far as I could tell. But there is something about paying attention to those feelings and then learning to take them from one place to another. 
and I found that I was okay with breathing exercises that were more like Hindu-based, like art of living stuff, uh, which I did with a lot of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley for five years, uh, but that I really connected when I, I was doing the Buddhist thing with uh, computers telling me when my brain was doing it right. It was like rubber bumpers for meditation for me is when I finally was like, oh, like I, now I can, that one feeling I was trying to get to that I didn't know I was trying to get to, I got there and it, and it was you know, the number seven on the screen kind of thing. That, I believe, is the future of meditation. Have you done any of that kind of stuff, heart rate variability and any of the feedback-based meditations? So I have a friend named Judd Brewer who's a really interesting guy. You might want to take a look at him. He's got a uh, book coming out in the next couple of months. Uh, uh, I don't remember the title. Um, but Jud- Dr. Judson Brewer, formerly of Yale, uh, now uh, the head of research at the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness. Oh, cool. Um, I'd love to interview and- him. He is a great guy. He's a friend, and he's a neuroscientist, one of the top neuroscientists. One of, there's this whole cadre of neuroscientists who have been looking at the effect that meditation has on the brain. And what Judd has, uh, has been working on is, um, first he did it in fMRIs, but yeah. those are hard. Those are very expensive. Uh, those are the big tubes you get into, and they look at blood flow in the brain. And, um, and then he moved to something less expensive involving EEGs, so sort yeah. of electrodes on your head, uh, which you had referenced before, which, and that gives you, you, the meditator, a real-time feedback on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, <laughs> I had a rather ex- embarrassing experience um, uh, where I went and did it, and it was saying that um, I was meditating incorrectly, and like it was basically saying that I was a shitty meditator. So it was it was, it was like really embarrassing and frustrating and demoralizing. And that night, the day I had uh, that experience with Judd in his in his rig, his EEG rig, um, I went to dinner with uh, both Judd and uh, and a guy named Joseph Goldstein, who is my meditation teacher and Judd's meditation teacher. And so we're at dinner and I say to Joseph, man, look, I did this thing. I was in I was in Judd's EEG machine and it told me I was at meditating incorrectly. And Joseph said, it said the same thing to me. <laughs> so uh, what I've taken to that to to mean is that meditation is so like we know so little about the mind and the brain and the interconnection between the two and what's happening when you meditate and what kind what kind of meditation does what that um, I'm really intrigued with neurofeedback and and getting people to meditate correctly and stopping wasting their time. I just have some fundamental questions about how doable it is um, but I suspect you you have more fully formed opinions than I do. I have been doing it. Well, 10 weeks of my life I've had electrodes on, and I opened a Neurofeedback Institute uh, earlier this year. Um, I've been, uh, before that, working with a variety of partners on, uh, on making it happen, but it's, it's very different than most of the, like, let's look at this. It's all directed by you. Uh, Brock, will you hand me my, my uh, spider hat thing? Uh, and in fact, I'm so convinced on this, and we won't spend the rest of the show talking about this, I, I'll just mention it. Um, this is like a clinical grade 24 channel thing. Uh, let's see if I can hold it up where you can see it better. Yeah, yeah, I can see it. And uh, every one of the people who works for Bulletproof gets access to neurofeedback as part of our employee like performance management because it makes them happier. And all of my direct reports get the five-day intensive. Uh, it's basically 10 hours a day of focused work with neurofeedback like this and a couple other systems in order to give your brain the two aspects of Buddhist meditation that we know about, which is higher alpha and higher levels of synchrony. It's completely, that's why the voice in my head like behaves itself uh, in, in, in the best possible ways. And it's, it's one of those things where it, it, there's so much that you read about and there's so much, so much opportunity right now in neurofeedback. There's $300 devices and all these things. I'm not convinced that we know enough to say this is the perfect optimal state, but I think there are clusters of people who've been studying, mostly meditators or people who just naturally are profoundly happy or just have other, other unusual skills where they have pockets of information, but we haven't like shared it all with all of the neuroscientists. And partly it's because there are, there's been a lot of look at pathology and not a lot of look at like 
why does this person have superpowers, right? Like, like they, they can be in the middle of a tornado, and they're like, isn't that a beautiful tornado? Yeah, I might die, but it's a beautiful tornado. Like, there, there's some kind of a thing that they're doing in their brain that I want to learn. And I don't know that I've learned it all the way, but uh, for me to have my own progress, I thought it was important to have neuroscientists working uh, directly with me who are very focused on that. So that's it's been a big focus in the last year. Um, anyway, I, I, well, I, should... like, I, I agree. I think that... Um... I think there's an enormous amount of potential. Um, I'm in, I'm incredibly intrigued by the idea of neurofeedback. I'd love to learn more about what you're doing. Um, we can do that after uh, the show. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, it's just it's just it's to to my mind it seems tricky, but I think it will be done, and and it will be huge. Um, uh, the other the other thing I was going to say. Um, uh, um, about the patho- you were talking before about pathology, yeah. you know, like the hi- the history of our understanding of the mind, our scientific understanding of the mind, the history of neuroscience and psychology and psychiatry has really been looking at disorders, dysfunction. Um, we're now moving into an era where uh, science is looking at well-being, positive mental states, and how to cultivate those. And the lesson here. Whether you're interested in neuroscience or not, the lesson for you as a human being is that your mind is trainable, and that is a huge headline, and and it is available to anybody. Things you don't like about yourself, you can't magically make them go away, but over time, you can reduce the likelihood that you will be an asshole, or that you will be impatient, or that you will be um, cruel to yourself. All of these things... um, uh, you can work on through meditation, and that is just enormous. And I think the role uh, for neurofeedback in that is, like, just earth-shatteringly uh, interesting, and um, I look forward to whatever comes. Well, I would love to have the opportunity to interview uh, your neuroscientist friend as well as your meditation teacher, um, if, if, they're, yeah. if they'd be up for that. Anyone who's exploring the mind, whether they're doing it by sitting in a cave, uh, looking at a, at a wall for 20 years and looking at what happens while they look at the wall, or they're doing it with every kind of medical sensor known to man, it's all like the most important area of exploration that we have right now. That There's Mars, and then there's inside our own heads. Otherwise, like we've done a lot of stuff. Uh, do you see a role for meditation or any of the, the sort of self-help side of things that, that you've investigated uh, for for kids in in high school or or younger, what, what's your take on that? Yes, 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 for sure. I think this is an incredibly promising area. We're already starting to see a lot of work being done in schools, um, and uh, we're seeing some studies of the, of these students. And the preliminary results, from what I can tell, are really promising, both as it pertains to behavior in the classroom and performance in the classroom, academic yeah. performance. So focus, grades, and behavior. Um, I'm not an. I don't have a all of the data at my fingertips, and I, sure. th- I think it's definitely in its germinal stages, but very, very promising. Um, the tricky part is, uh, and this is very tricky, uh, we're already seeing some pushback because some parents, especially in areas where you have high levels of um, uh, religiosity, uh, don't like the idea of meditation being brought in because they think it's, they, they, they believe correctly that it's derived from Eastern religions. Um, it's derived, depending on what kind of meditation you're teaching, either from Hinduism or from uh, Buddhism. They're correct about that, except for they're incorrect in my view that the, that the way it's currently being taught has some religious overtones. I don't think it does. I think it's been stripped almost entirely of, uh, in, almost in every case, uh, of metaphysical claims and religious lingo and is really just about these exercises for your brain. It is no more... Uh, meditation is no more, or mindfulness, which is the fruit of Buddhist meditation, is no more Buddhist than algebra, which is is an <laughs> Arabic word, is uh, is a Muslim thing. It is a fundamental, uh, is a law of the universe, and is just something that happens to be described well by the Buddhists. I, I was looking for that example, and I came up with tobacco, which is a Native American sacrament, or you smoke it every day. Like it's not a religious act anymore, but it once was. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, were you bullied in high school? 
A little bit, yeah. Uh, both both directions. Um, uh, so, I'm not, so high school it was. So I was a little bit of a bully in elementary school. Okay. Uh, I remember my friend Larry and I got in trouble because we thought it was very funny in the winter to all the little kids. You wore hats with pom poms on the top, and we would grab the pom and throw it as far as we could in the air, and we got in trouble for that. Um, uh, and then, uh, yeah, in junior high, I got pretty badly bullied by this guy. This is like straight out of a movie. Muggsy Malone. His name was Muggsy Malone. And I remember I was a bit of a wise-ass, still a bit of a wise-ass. And I remember telling he was sort of making fun of me for being Jewish, although I'm only half Jewish. And I explained to him that Jesus was a Jew. And he charlie-horsed me, and I had to uh, uh, crawl to class crying. Uh, Muggsy Malone went on to be the Secretary of Education in Massachusetts. Um, wow. Even with Matt, that name, Matthew that's Malone. impressive. <laughs> no, his, well, his, his nickname was uh, Muggsy. His, his name is Matthew. He grew up to be a really smart, nice man. Uh, so, uh, so yes, I, I definitely was I encountered some bullying on both, uh, both sides of the spectrum. Uh, why do you ask? Well, I'm asking because I've experienced a lot of people when, when they do meditation, a lot, a lot of the anxiety actually comes up from that. So we were just talking about high school. It made me think of it because we get that programming early in life and like if you just feel threatened by whatever bullying environment uh, you find years later that you're replicating that and then when you start a practice of mindfulness uh, you start realizing that okay I'm still like defending myself against these absolutely stupid threats because they aren't threats anymore did that come up for you ever when in your meditation practice or like the sources of your anxiety or was it more like Iraq kind of stuff you know so it is very common and I think probably quite healthy, as long as it's not too much, for your anxieties and maybe even some traumas to come up when yeah. you quiet the mind. When you stop, yeah. when you get off the hamster wheel and you are just right there with whatever is happening in your mind, I think some of these things are going to surface. Interestingly for me, um, not a lot of that has happened. Now, that, that could mean one of two things. Either I'm a terrible meditator, uh, which is entirely possible, or that I've had a really charmed life. And, you know, I was raised by two loving parents who are still together. I have a very happy marriage, a beautiful kid, an amazing career. I was born on third base. And um, I'm aware of that and very grateful for it. And so uh, I certainly get a lot of self-criticism that comes up, a lot of judgment, self-judgment. So some unpleasant stuff, but not a lot of... Mahler music playing in the backdrop of my particular psyche. Um, but I think it's very, very common. And for the average meditator, I would argue if that happens, as long as it's not in the realm of psychopathology, like where you're hearing voices that are telling you to do bad things, or um, that that's okay. In fact, it, it can be a sign of progress. However, I think you should, if, if this is happening and becoming worrisome to you, I think you should work with an experienced meditation teacher and or a psychiatrist or psychologist. Um, very well put. I believe that if we teach meditation to younger kids, uh, and just for people listening, that there's a large audience, and I, I don't mean a religious attempt at all, no no candles, no white robes, none of that stuff. Just like, hey, pay attention. The way I teach my kids, like, take a deep breath in. You know, where is the emotion in your body? Just breathe out now. Like, like, you know, are you feeling some emotions? Tell me about them. Draw me a picture of the emotions. Just paying attention to what they are instead of reacting to them shifts the framing. I think if we teach kids that, we'd see less bullying and, and less of the, the high school violence and uh, and even middle school violence that we're seeing now. Like, like when when you get into that situation as a kid, your brain isn't isn't done there like it's a very young brain it's like training a puppy right and, and puppies they still pee on the rug and they do whatever and eventually they become either like service dogs or they become like the dog that like tears up the furniture or the dog that bites all the other dogs and my brain was probably closer to the the brain that or the dog that bites all the other dogs and now it's relatively service dog like and you nailed it exactly like the brain can be trained and it, I kind of do look at it like a dog. Like, it's an animal thing. It is an animal, right? It, it's part of our meat. What, when, when you look at, at all of the, the, the things you've done, what has been the single most effective meditation for you, Dan? Well, let me just say, first of all, that I totally agree with you. Um, everything you said, I do think that, that it is, it could be very fruitful to teach to, to young people. Um, and they obviously 
have uh, it appears the most sort of malleability although what modern neuroscience is showing us is that the brain can change and is changing all the time uh, the question is are you going to be in control of those changes or are you going to let them happy, <laughs> happen willy-nilly I wouldn't say there's one kind so uh, um, so people ask me all the time what kind of meditation do you do um, and so it's a little bit of a tricky answer I guess you know um the answer would be mindfulness meditation. Um, uh, so what does that actually mean? Mindfulness meditation is derived from Buddhism. Um, that's what we teach on this 10% Happier app that I've just started. Actually, we, we share a venture capitalist, Gus Tai, who invested in your company, is an investor in my company. How did I um, not know that? Gus is, I've known Gus for many years. Yeah, oh see, well, okay. I, he's a new person in my life, and he's been a phenomenally helpful individual because I'm new to business and we just raised our capital like six, six, eight months ago. And Gus was, you know, really, he, he wrote the, one of the biggest checks and he's been, he's been incredibly helpful and really, you know, he's a special guy. Let's just say that. And he loves you. Thanks for connecting those dots because I know 10% Happier is, is one of their companies, but I just connected the title of your book with the company. So, oh my goodness. Okay. So uh, basically, this is a Sand Hill Road venture capital company, the first guys to invest in Starbucks and Jamba Juice and all. And so they invested in you, you said, six months ago? Six to eight months ago. Six to eight months ago, yeah. okay. And it's been probably a year and a half for Bulletproof. Uh, and I've known Gus for God, definitely more than 10 years, and he sits on my board of directors. So what, what a small world. I, I, I did not make that connection, my bad. <laughs> He, he is really bullish on your business and um, he really likes you personally. Just, you know, he, he, you've come up a bunch of times in our conversations. And so just to answer your question, like well, on the app, we teach mindfulness meditation, secular mindfulness meditation. Yeah. Now, mindfulness is what is my, mindfulness is the ability to know what's happening in your head right now without getting carried away by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really the fruit that mindfulness and focus, which are related, are, that, right. that's really the fruit of secular meditation um and so that that's what we're teaching on the app i guess in my own personal practice though i as i said before i i I am a little bit more interested in in buddhist meditation mindfulness is derived from buddhist meditation um some people get a little hinky about uh buddhism because they think it's a religion and as i said before in some in many places it is practiced as a religion but i think you can practice it without it being religious um uh depending on what you mean by religious uh so so the the mindfulness meditation has been hugely useful for me why for the reasons that we just discussed which is that we all have this voice in our head this is constantly yammering at us you know has us wanting stuff not wanting stuff thinking about the past or thinking about the future to the detriment of whatever's happening right now, uh, comparing ourselves to people, judging other people, judging ourselves. And when you're unaware of this, like, chaos of your own mind, my friend Sam Harris says that when he thinks about um, the voice in his head, he feels like he's been hijacked by the most boring person alive <laughs> who says the same shit over and over. You know, and Sam's right. And when, when you're unaware of this, it yanks you around. And it's why you find yourself with your hand in the fridge when you're not hungry or you're saying something stupid uh, that you later regret or you're checking your email in the middle of a conversation with your kids. And uh, so that really has been what has changed my life. Um, And so I I jokingly use the term 10% happier, again, just as kind of a joke. But what I now have come to believe is that the 10% compounds annually that you yeah. get better and better at this skill, and there really is no ceiling. It's not like physical exercise where you're limited by, you know, your body. Uh, the mind has is limitless in many ways, and so that you can, you can get better and better and better at this, and it only gets more interesting. As you've been doing this secular practice, have you ever had a spiritual experience during meditation? Well, it depends how you define spiritual, right? So, you know, spiritual has a lot of uh, connotations that I'm not personally comfortable with, you know, like metaphysical connotations, by which by metaphysical, I mean, you know, stuff you can't prove. Um, But if you think about spiritual as um, uh, dropping the borders of the ego uh, 
where you're not so tightly confined by this kind of Stalinist in your head, um, uh, then yes, all the time. You know, there's one simple little one simple little exercise. Um, I don't know if you're friends with Sam Harris. He, he's a neuroscientist and leading atheist, and but also an active meditator. And um, he's the one who connected me with my teacher Joseph Goldstein. And oh, wow. uh, Sam um, talks. He has a book called Waking Up. is a really great book, and um, he talks about this exercise. In, he recommends this exercise in his book, which is actually based on an exercise. Uh, uh, in another book, I'm re- referencing a lot of books here before I actually tell you what the exercise is. <laughs> the other book is called On Having No Head. On Having No Head oh, is neat. the name of the book. Okay? And so the exercise sounded a, to me a little silly at first. Over time, it has become incredibly meaningful to me. The, so this is the silly part. From your, pers- from your perspective, everybody in the world has a head. But you do not. You can't see your own head. You see everybody Mm -hmm. else's head, but you don't see your own head. Um, So if you just imagine yourself in a state of headlessness, all that's left is the world. There is no you. This you that is like the center point of your life that is, you know, always wanting and not wanting and not caring and um, needs all of this care and feeding and is worrying all the time. But if you just drop that for a second and realize that actually if you look around, it's just the world. Um, and that what is what is looking out? This yawning chasm of pure knowing to get a little heavy with you, right? It's just, mm-hmm. this, just this knowing faculty of the mind. Um, that is a spiritual experience right there, easily <laughs> and perennially available. Uh, and, and, and spiritual in that it shaves down uh, the ego. And uh, the ego is, one could argue, the source of all of your unhappiness. It, changing your, your frame of reference, your perception, is, is really, really profound. And I've been looking for ways to make that happen quickly and to be able to, to share it with other people. Uh, at the, the Bulletproof Conference this year, in, uh, on September 23rd in Pasadena, yes, that was a blatant plug. Um, we can, have I just say that I, can I just say that I have no problem with blatant plugs, <laughs> just, just for the record? Well, I, I appreciate that. And plus, it's my show. I can plug whatever I want. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Yes. Amen. Uh, here's, what we're, uh, here's what we're doing, though, that's totally in line with this. Uh, and this is something that actually we're, we're putting together in the lab where I'm, I'm interviewing you right now. And it's an experience for people who come to the conference. They put on uh, virtual reality goggles. And they're fed a real-time video feed from a camera, but the camera is mounted up behind their head. So all of a sudden, instead of looking out through your eyes, you're looking out through the camera at the back of yourself, and then you go through a little obstacle course. You play yourself like a video game. And instantly, your sense of self moves from, oh no, I'm trapped in this head, to I'm outside of this body looking down, and your level of awareness goes up, and your skin tingles, and you have all these interesting feelings the only problem is that if you're prone to dissociative states, uh, you're not allowed to do it because it might be bad for you. So we have a waiver <laughs> and, and a, a little warning there. But it, it, it's exactly what you just described there. We're like, okay, in this case, I love that. taking the eyes out of the head and putting them behind the head so that you're not in your head anymore. And, right. and the veil comes down. And like, it, it's so cool. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a brilliant thing that you're describing. And it just really points to the fact that this expression of I'm in my head so much, like being in your head, being self-conscious is what, you know, makes it impossible to access the zone in sports or to focus on your work because you're so worried about whatever shit you're worried about or, or, or so focused on like feeding whatever addiction you have, like cigarettes or food or whatever, um, or makes it impossible to be, to get up and dance at your daughter's wedding. Um, so, so the, the exercises like the one you just described are incredibly useful. And meditation, which uh, requires a little bit more time, um, but not that much more time, is just a way to get you there. Uh, very, very well said. It, do you do breathing exercises in conjunction with your meditation? I don't, but I'm very open to them, and I, you know, I. I've heard very powerful arguments. You, you talked about the art of living, which is is that Sri Sri uh, Ravi Shankar? Yeah. I think so. So I know the scientist who is another person you should think about having on your podcast. Um, uh, I'm embarrassingly spacing on her name. Uh, uh, 
it'll come to me in a second. But she is a, a big devotee of. Uh, uh, she's at Stanford University. She's the head of research at the Center for Compassion. At Emma oh. Seppala is her name. Emma okay. Seppala. We'll get her um, on the show too. This is she's awesome. great, <laughs> and she's great. I, I, I can I can uh, I can help you book this podcast in perpetuity if you would like. Um, oh, thank you, Ben. And, I, I would and, like. And um, she's a big believer in. Um, in breathing exercises, and there's uh, there appear to be a number of studies that show it really works. So I'm very open-minded and intrigued about it. And before, I'm, I'm, you may have some things to say about that, but before it leaves my mind, let me just extend an invitation because I, I would, and this is a sincere one, and I will follow up with your folks on this. I just started a few months ago a little... Ten percent happier podcast. So I'm I'm new to the I'm new to the game. I'm not I'm nowhere near at your level, but um, but I would love to have you on because oh, you uh, you've been asking me great questions and letting me yammer on about my own crap. But I would love to uh, reverse it and have you on and ask you a bunch of questions. So yeah, think about it. I'd be honored to be a guest, and and that was a great plug. Ten percent happier podcast, dancing podcast. You, you say you're new to the game, but let's face it, you've been on national news more times than just about ninety nine. Actually, like I don't know how. Many nines to do, but almost any human being ever. Yep. So I'm pretty sure you know how to interview and how to how to, how to roll a pretty nice podcast. So I'd be honored to be on. And I think uh, for people listening to the show, here's what they don't tell you about podcasting: interviewing is a skill and an art. And I'm I'm I would give myself maybe a five out of a ten. Dan has spent his life doing it, so he knows how to interview people and how to get the story in a way that I have yet to even experience. So you're going you're gonna to have a good listening experience, and I can say that not having listened to your show, but just knowing your skills in, in your craft. So I'm, I'm actually excited to be on. The thing about well, thank you because I'm gonna I'm gonna bug you about that. Um, the th- the thing about podcasting that's interesting though is is actually the amateurs have an advantage because, um, and I may be wrong about this, but the, let me just advance the theory and then you can swat it away. But uh, <laughs> I, I am I was born and raised for more than twenty years in network news, so I'm I'm this very I got this very formal way about me and. Um, and often, you know, professional interviews, interviewers aren't really even listening to the answers because they're so wrapped yeah. up in thinking about what the next question they're going to ask is. A guy like you is just like literally having a conversation. So it's not maybe not uh, it's pretty polished, but it's maybe not as polished as uh, Charlie Rose. Um, mm-hmm. But but that's not what podcast listeners want. They want authenticity and they want a real conversation and a real exchange between two minds or however many yeah. minds are on the podcast. So I, I, I would say you're well above a five and, and that's because maybe you're not measuring it in the right way. Well, I, I, I'm grateful for the compliment and I don't listen to very many podcasts partly because my commute is through the garden that raises the food <laughs> for my family. Uh, like I, my morning commute has, has nothing to do. But there's at least a quarter million podcasts right now, and when you listen to a lot of them, you, you take apart the ones that just don't have production quality, where the sound quality is good enough to to be respectful of the listeners. Like, like people have no idea. Like there's studio lighting, there's three cameras focused on me, there's two audio things. We do audio engineering and all that, so it sounds good because it's painful to listen to people with bad audio. Uh, but even then. Uh, there's so many of these where people don't have anything to say, but they feel obligated to talk. And I think this is the ego that you're talking about there. So if if you're doing a podcast that has a point that is there to deliver something, it has more in common with the news where you're there to deliver something when when you're you're, you're doing what you're trained to do. Your style of interviewing will be different, but I find the signal to noise ratio in in the world of podcasting is is very. It, it's not very good. Like there's a mm-hmm. lot of noise out there and not a lot of signal. You've been pretty well trained to deliver a signal, and it sounds like now your training is going to be to be less in your head when you're doing it, and to be a, a little bit more flowing than you normally would if you had a teleprompter telling you the next question, the next question. And by the way, I'm totally just guessing all that. I've been interviewed by you. You didn't have teleprompters. You were at my house when you interviewed me, and you did a cool segment. So like, I, I don't know how you do your craft, but the questions you asked me there were probing. Uh, they were intelligent. Uh, you listen to the answers. You ask the right following questions, and that ability to be linear seems to be lacking in some podcasts. And it's one that I'm working on, but I don't want to be too linear because, like you said, then it comes off as programmatic, and uh, it, it wouldn't be fun to listen to. And then what's the point, right? Well, you actually you totally nailed what the challenges are for somebody like me in getting into podcasting. It is, uh, it's really about not 
about dropping the some of the artifice and pretense that comes with sitting at a desk with all these lights and you know talking into a camera with a million unseen viewers on the other side of it, which is a very surreal thing to do, and to be more like the Dan that you know chit chats with his wife or with his friends, and that has you know that has been a bit of a process. Um, uh, but I you know I I, I really think that there is a connection between good interviewing and meditation. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> that meditation just allows you to, you know, trains you over time to be right there with whatever's happening. And so not so caught up in planning the next question or whatever point you want to make so that, you know, I'm listening to you talk and, uh, you know, I'm able to sort of recall the three or four things that you said that I want to respond to. And, um, and or, or when I'm doing a podcast, I can have a plan when I'm interviewing, when I'm not actually the interviewer on my own podcast, I can have a plan for the way I want things to go, but I'm, I'm totally willing to throw that plan out based on what the interviewee says and just go down whatever tributary that person want, wants to lead me down. It, it's, it's pretty amazing. I, I hadn't thought of it like that, but yeah, in order to do well on stage as a public speaker, I used to come into that when I started doing this. I, I was in a complete state of panic, and I would I would go into a flow state, which was really helpful <laughs> in my early days of public speaking. And after I did the meditation and all this other stuff, I I got to the point where I have a level of awareness to okay, maybe there's a hostile question in the audience, maybe there's not. Like maybe the slides are working right, or maybe there's a technical error, or maybe they just gave me half the time I had. None of it makes me feel like I'm going to die anymore, and it, it's that fear thing because, like, my fear response is is it's trained. It, it, it's like the the police dog; you can hear gunfire, and it doesn't jump up and cower. Uh, so to be able to to sit there and hear like whatever the next question is, or oh, maybe I decided not to go that route. There isn't the visceral response that I would have had before. Like, oh no, what if I don't go there? Maybe I'll die, or maybe no one will like me. Or maybe you know, like you go down these like incredible spirals of like like it'll be the end of Bulletproof Radio, and people will make fun of me, and no one will like me, and, and all that stuff that that would have been there in my head. It's just like oh, I'm going to do this, and either one of these is is okay, and that frees up so much like mitochondrial capacity to then <laughs> like listen and like to be present, and, and so yeah, very well put. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, and thank you for that. You know, there's a Buddhist term for what you just described. Uh, this, like these little movies we make, um, it's called prapancha, um, P-R-A-P-A-N-C-A, prapancha, which means, and this is an amazing, it's amazing that the Buddhists came up with a phrase like this. It literally means the imperialistic tendency of mind, which is that we a data point arises, like you have a moment of fear. And then you automatically, it colonizes the whole future. So you're like, uh, okay, um, I asked a question that I'm not sure is the right question. Um, the guest is going to hate me. The audience is going to hate me. It's going to be the end of Bulletproof Radio. I'm going to be living on the street somewhere. It's like, and that happens in a, in <laughs> exactly. a second. Or like, my, I have a two, I have a one and a half year old and he won't brush his teeth and so it's like he won't brush his teeth he's never going to brush his teeth he's going to have <laughs> meth mouth he's never going to have a job it's like that happens immediately <laughs> like and this or we live our whole lives with this going on and we don't even know it's happening we now i'm sure your listeners are sort of nodding their head because this happens to everybody but it the the, the beauty and the value of of meditation of, of having this self-awareness mindfulness is that you can catch that and get off the train yeah. earlier before you go kick the dog or whatever it is that you do when you get frustrated. Uh, we talked about being in your head and, and that whole thing happens almost outside your head. Like it's, it's unconscious. You just, you feel the emotion. You're like what? But the, the steps that led up to it, unless you're watching them, you're not going to see them. And you're just like, okay, I feel this way. There must be a reason. Then you make up a story about the reason, which is clearly the dog's fault. So you should kick the dog. And yes. it, yeah. it doesn't make you feel better. I had an experience when I first got into the, the personal development side of things. I, I had been through a, a rough divorce, and I'd lost the $6 million I made when I was 26, which, okay, that, that's a couple of the big WHO stressors. And <laughs> I was at a, a personal growth retreat, and, and the, the people leading it were saying, well, Dave, there's got to be some feelings in there. I mean, yeah, there's a feeling. I'm angry. And they're like, no, there's other feelings in there. I'm like, no, there's not. So I spent two days going through this, this argument all in my head. Nope, angry, nothing, anger. And, and finally, uh, they did some things that just made me like, feel really uncomfortable. Like, I got to leave now. I'm like, no, no, like, like, there's something. 
and finally, this lady looks at me and she goes, okay, do you feel anything in your body? I go, yeah, there's something in my stomach. And she looks me right in the eyes and she goes, you know what that is? That's called fear. And, and I looked at her, I go, really? <laughs> uh, and it was because I was so in my head that I had this story that's like, there's no reason for me to be afraid right now. Therefore, that feeling is not fear. Therefore, you should ignore it because it's noise. And, and so for me, the biggest part of learning to be a good podcaster or uh, to just be a good CEO or a good husband has been to learn, oh, there's great value in paying attention to all the weird stuff that's happening and then figuring out why it's happening. Not making up a story about why it's happening, but actually watching it to see why it's happening and then going back and figuring where did that, in my view of the world, where that bad programming come from that's causing that for no good reason. And then, and this has been my biggest challenge, has been how do you reset the programming so it doesn't happen anymore? Rather than training the dog to sit still, it's like another level beyond that. So there isn't the impulse in the first place. Uh, and that's, that's a powerful thing. And, and that's, I think, where very advanced meditation from many different paths can lead you and where some psychologists can lead you too. But it, it's been the most fun thing to explore I've ever thought of because I was such an asshole because I was always acting out of that and I just didn't know it, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, what you're talking about is enlightenment. Um, you know, what, what meditation and the shallow end of the pool, uh, you know, that my level, uh, I've only been doing it for like seven years, is really about... Um, uh, being self-aware enough so that you're not triggered by blindly um, mm -hmm. by your patterns or by external stimuli, um, but enlightenment in the in the Buddhist uh, uh, conception is that uh, you uproot all negative ten tendencies and that it's a stepwise progression over that you and, it's, and there are these very detailed maps in the various Buddhist schools of how oh, you yeah. get from like what they call an uninstructed worldling basically me uh, to step you know having a, a set of experiences that have been mapped out for millennia that ultimately culminate allegedly uh, and I and I, I, I say that uh, I want to put an emphasis on that because I've not seen any evidence for it but allegedly culminate in the complete uprooting of greed hatred and confusion so that uh, you to, or to use your expression you deprogram and the bug's gone uh, I, I believe there's something to that. The, the definition of enlightenment that I work with is, is when you have uh, full control and awareness of all aspects of your biology, uh, uh, which sounds kind of small, but if, if you have knowledge of what every cell in your body is doing, every mitochondria, all these sensors for the world around you, you realize that the world has nothing like what you thought it was mm -hmm. because you've actually grown that level of awareness. And that, that's where I'm working on, you, you know, just growing awareness. And, and when you grow awareness, it automatically makes you less of an asshole. <laughs> and you're nicer to people around you, and, and you're more in a position, and you have more desire to just serve other people. And I, I could be entirely wrong in all this, but I'm happier along the way. Uh, I would like to think I'm more than 10% happier than I used to be, so that, that it seems to be working, but I'll tell you when I'm 180. Nice. Excellent. <laughs> now, now, Dan, we're coming up on the end of the show, and, and there's a question I've asked everyone, and you have a very unique set of experiences uh, having visited all these churches and all these war zones and having been on, on TV for so long. If someone came to you tomorrow, uh, given everything that you know, and said, look, I want to perform better at everything I do. Like, I want to kick more ass in, in life. What are the three most important things I need to know? What would you tell them? Look, I mean, nothing. None of this is going to be surprising, but the the, the three, uh, I would say, four things that are, are like the basic recipe for human flourishing are um, the ba basic bodily. So I'll keep it to three: uh, the basic bodily maintenance, like exercise and diet uh, and sleep, because um, without that, you can't function. Um, and I know you're interested in lots of hacks around those areas, and I'm open to that too. But you just you got to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, two is great relationships in your life. Um, the, we are social animals, and uh, without good relationships, we go crazy. The quickest you listen to John McCain, he says the worst part about being a POW was not the beatings; it was solitary confinement. So we need to have good relationships in our life. And I think the third, uh, which for lo far too long has been um, ignored, 
is mental training. Um, uh, all of the meditation that we've talked about for these uh, last few minutes. So uh, those are the three things I would recommend as a sort of a path to uh, um, excellence and happiness in your life. Beautiful answers. Uh, where can people find out more about your book, about your app, about your company, and any other place you want to send them? Yeah, thank you for shameless, letting me shamelessly plug. <laughs> I really do appreciate that, although this has been fun in every conceivable level, but uh, but I also appreciate the, the plug. Um, the uh, the book is, you know, you can get it anywhere, Amazon, or whatever. It's called 10% Happier. Um, uh, the app is right now. It's it's in the Apple App Store. We're working on a um, a uh, uh, Android version. If you don't have an Apple device, you can get it at ten percent happier dot com. Um, and so we're really in the. I'd, I'd love to hear from you or your users about the app because we're really sort of at the beginning stages and we're a startup and and uh, so I love hearing from people if you hit me on Twitter at Dan B. Harris um, and just tell me what you think of the thing it's free uh, to start with uh, um, and so you can check it out and download it and try it for a couple of days what we do that we think is interesting is that we uh, every day every day you get video and audio so every time you use the thing, um, you and you can skip the video if you don't want to do it. But uh, every day you uh, you know you get me for a couple minutes chit chatting with a meditation teacher and asking all the obnoxious questions you might have, and then it goes right into a guided meditation. The other thing we do that's different is we give you a coach, like a real human being that you can text with through the app and ask any question you have, and that person is a real human being, an experienced meditator who can help you out. Um, and then the, then if you want to listen to the podcast, it's available everywhere that podcasts are available. Um, and like I said, I love hearing from people who use this stuff, read the book or listen to the podcast or use the app. Um, in particular, I like hearing like where I'm going wrong and what I should fix. So if you hit me on Twitter, that's the one social media where I actually do read the comments. Thank you, Dan. Huge pleasure being on here, and I'm going to hold you to, uh, to letting me turn the tables on you. So um, thank you, and it won't be the end. You're very welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Go pick up a copy of 10% Happier. Uh, Dan's an interesting guy, and if you saw that original uh, original piece on Modafinil or ProVigil and me, uh, that's uh, I'm sure we've linked to it on the website, that was actually Dan at my house uh, years ago. He flew out from New York with a camera crew uh, to, to film. So it's what a, what a small world and what a fascinating world that here we are about five years later talking uh, on a podcast and I get to interview you. Never would have imagined uh, super cool. I look forward to hanging out again. Thank you, sir. Thanks for watching. Don't miss out. To keep getting great videos like this to help you kick more ass at life, subscribe to the Bulletproof YouTube channel at bulletproofexec.com slash YouTube and stay bulletproof. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.